discussing the idea of communism. Uh, my name is Sally Campbell, I work for Bookmarks Publications and I'll be chairing the session. Um, we've got three excellent speakers uh, on the panel tonight. Uh, first of all, we've got Alex Kalinikos, who's a leading member of the Social A new edition of his classic revolutionary ideas of Karl Marx. We also have John um, Holloway, who's a professor at the Institute of Social Sciences and Humanities at the Autonomous University in Pueblo, Mexico. He's the author, um, probably most famously, of Change the World Without Taking Power, of which has a new edition coming in September. And also his most recent book is Crap Capitalism. Um, and finally we have Slavoj Žižek. Um, <laughs> uh, philosopher, author of dozens of books, and the latest is Living in the End Times. Um, I'm going to introduce each of the speakers um, to, to put their case. Um, while they're doing that, members of the team in the red t-shirts will be going out with speaker slips. So for the thousand people in this room who want to contribute or ask a question or, or put a point to any of our speakers, um, please take a slip, fill it in and hand it in. So after they've all introduced um, the topic, we'll open it up then to the discussion from the floor. So first of all, I'll introduce Alex Kalinikos. Thanks very much. Uh, a couple of months ago, I was visiting South Africa, and I, I went to the, theater, the Museum of Apartheid in Johannesburg, which is a fantastic record of the whole system of racial oppression in, in South Africa. And halfway through going round to the museum, I burst into tears. And the reason why I did was because I realised that apartheid, this whole institutionalised system of oppression, had been reduced to items in a museum. I, for, for the first few decades of my life, I was brought up uh, on the assumption that apartheid was part of the permanent furniture of the world. And suddenly, I was brought up with something that I'd known intellectually, but was experiencing emotionally, that apartheid, this dense system of oppression, had gone. Of course, that leaves many other evils in the world, but that particular form of oppression had gone, and it was a wonderful moment. Now, what I'd like to do one day, and it may be in a few decades' time, I'm rather bent and on a stick, is to go to a museum of capitalism. <laughs> I want capitalism to be reduced to the same status as a as a party. But that poses the question, what, where would I be uh, if, if I went to uh, a museum of, of capitalism? And the answer is, in communism, in a communist society. Now, because more than anything else, communism is the name of the alternative to, 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 to capitalism. I want to say something about the classical Marxist understanding of, of communism, but it's an idea that has been retu returned, at least to intellectual debate, in the past few years, particularly as a result of the interventions by Slavoj over there and by the uh, French uh, philosopher Alain 
than you. And I think this is a very useful thing to have happened because we're confronted with an extremely serious and I think protracted crisis of capitalism and therefore we need to be talking not about regulating capitalism, not about reforming capitalism, but by replacing it with something completely different. And communism is about the alternative. The idea of communism is about the idea of the alternative to, to, to capitalism. So what is communism? Now, Marx and Engels gave uh, a classic definition of, of communism in the Communist Manifesto, and they said, for us, communism is the real movement that abolishes the present state of things. And I think that that's a very important idea there, that communism uh, isn't, for Marx at least, primarily an, an idea. Communism is the actual revolutionary process that abolishes capitalism. And implied in that is a degree of scepticism about too much discussion of the idea of communi communism, as opposed to the development, as Martin Engels put it, of real movements that can begin to destroy it as a system. But of course that isn't all that Marx says about communism. He call, in Capital, he calls communism the rule of the associated producers. In other words, those who, who perform the labor those who produce the wealth collectively taking control of the productive resources of society. And in the critique of the Goethe program, he um, talks about the kind of principle that would govern a communist society. And this, he says, would be the principle of from each according to his abilities and to, to each according to his, his needs, which is, if you think, of, think about it, a rad radically egalitarian Principle. You distribute on the basis of what people need and you demand from people not what you're prepared to pay them. Not, in other words, you don't get people to participate in production on the basis of material incentives. You get them to participate on the basis of what abilities they can bring to the whole process of producing things. Now, I don't think Marx's very limited discussions of communism are the end of the story by any means, apart from anything else because of Marx's critique of utopian socialism, in other words of constructing ideal schemes of a, um, of a, of a communist, communist society, he says I think just too little about what a communist society would be like and that's a discussion that we need to, need to continue. But it seems to me that fundamentally in those relatively brief intuitions that we find in Marx, we get uh, the basis of, of a good understanding of communism. And it seems to me better than some of the things that have been put around in the, the current debates, like Badiou, in his writings of, on communism, vacillates between a very abstract notion of communism as the essentially the ideal of equality, which seems to be much too abstract because it says nothing about how production is organised, Alternatively, he's, very, he's much too concrete because he, talks about, he moves from talking about communism with a small c, the alternative to capitalism, to talking about communism with a capital C, in other words, actually existing communist parties who, who more often than not are Stalinist parties compromised by all sorts of very fundamental failings. And I think there are two things that are missing from Badiou's discussion. First of all, the critique of political economy, because when Marx talks 
about the real movement for the abolition of the present state of things. The soil from which that real movement grows, the grounding for any, any real movement towards communism, is provided by capitalist society and its contradictions. And Badiou says nothing about that. Secondly, what's missing from Badiou's discussion of communism is self-emancipation. The self-emancipation of the working class that was central to Marx's conception of how society would be transformed. In other words, the achievement of communism is the act of the oppressed and the exploited themselves. No one else can do it for them. Now, turning to Slavoj and, and John, I think that they both certainly agree about the necessity of the critique of political economy. Um, I'm sure that John agrees about self-emancipation, although I think we have different understandings of self-emancipation. I'd be interested to know what Savoy thought, thought about that, because it seems to be critical to any notion, notion of a genuine communist transformation, or the actuality of a communist transformation. But I think there is a point on which we do disagree, and I want to spend the last um, time that I have... How much have I got left? Seven minutes. Good. That should be enough talking about something that, where I think we will, will disagree, which is that contemporary discussions of communism tend to focus on the idea of the commons, which is a very widespread idea on the radical, r radical left around, around the world. And very often people talk, uh, so powerful is the idea of the commons, that people talk about communism as opposed to communism. Now what's the idea here? The idea is that there's lots of good stuff in the world, um, either natural resources or human creativity in its fruits. And these, this good stuff is essentially, in some sense, collectively owned. And the problem is that capitalism comes along and pinches all this good stuff and turns it to its own purposes. And that's fundamentally what's, not simply what's wrong with capitalism, but what drives capitalism. Now, of course, it's true that there is lots of good stuff in the world that is a product of collective action or is collectively appropriated in some sort of way. And it's absolutely true that capitalism is coming along all the time and pinching, pinching it. Marx talks about the primitive accumulation of capital, the original seizure of key productive resources that makes capitalism possible as a system. But John and David Harvey and other people have stressed that this... this uh, appropriation of what's commonly owned uh, is a continuing reality of capitalism. It's not just something that happened in the past, it's something that goes on all the time. But I think it's a mistake simply to reduce what capitalism does to that. And there are people who do that. I'm not saying that either Slavoj or John does, but for example Hart and Negri do, for example in their most recent book, Commonwealth. And the effect um, of what they essentially do is reduce capitalism to the appropriation of the, of, of the commons. And what that means is capitalism is essentially an external parasitic force that comes along and seizes things and use, turns it to its own purposes. This, I think, is a profound misunderstanding of Marx and, more importantly, a profound misunderstanding of, of capitalism. Because for Marx, capital, he insists on this, is a social relation. And it's a social relation defined by, fundamentally, all sorts of other things, the exploitive relationship between capital and wage labour. And the relationship 
between capital and wage labour is an internal, it's an intrinsic one. Each of the parties to the relationship, the workers who are exploited and the capitalists who, are exploit, who exploit them, are defined socially by the, the connection um, uh, with, with, e with each other. Why, do, why does it matter? I mean, this may sound like a, a weird bit of kind of philosophical abstraction that I'm in, engaging in. It matters because it helps us to understand what's happening in capitalism today. Let's look at China, the, the kind of fantasy world of the apologists of, of capitalism. If you look at what's happening in China today, of course it's true that commons have been appropriated, that in all sorts of ways the newly developing private capitalist class uh, establishes itself as a social and economic force by grabbing collectively owned land, stealing all sorts of stuff and so on. But that's not what's critical to what's happening in China. What we see in China is a process of very rapid capital, capitalist development that involves an enormous creation and expansion of human productive capabilities by bringing workers together in conditions where they're collectively exploited. There's this place called Foxconn, um, which is an extraordinary company which produces an awful lot of the iPads and iPods and iPhones and so on that everyone desires so, so much, which involves one complex in the southeast of China where 300,000 workers are employed in the same factory, factory, factory town. That's crucial to the kind of capitalist development that is is, is, is taking place in China. Um, and it, what it involves is a vast expansion in human productive capabilities, but on the basis of the most intensive ex exploitation. What this means is, and this is something that Marx is very insistent on, that communism isn't just um, a, um, about taking back what capital stole, what those collectively owned resources that pre-existed the, 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 the formation of the cap, capital relation. What mm, communism, much more importantly, is, is, a, is about is seizing the productive capacities that are created within the framework of the cap, capital relation. Marx has this marvellously contradictory view of capitalism as a disastrous and destructive force but also an enormous expansion in human productive powers, which revolution is about take, taking, taking control of. Why does this matter politically? It matters politically because ultimately it comes down to the question of, of power. As I said, the relationship between capital and wage labour is an internal one. Exploiter and exploiter are bound together in this intimate relationship of interdependence. Interdependence, that's critical. In other words, the worker uh, depends upon the capitalist because the worker only owns his or her labour power. The worker has to go and work for a capitalist and be exploited and all that sort of thing. But there's another side to that. The capitalist depends on the worker. The worker's labour is the source of the capitalist profits. When the worker's labour stops, then capitalism stops. And this isn't just an abstract proposition. Because again, let's go back to the case of China, the so-called future of capitalism. What we've seen in recent weeks are explosions of strikes by this new working class. <laughs> bringing to a halt 
processes of production, extracting massive pay, pay increases, shifting the whole relation of power between capital and wage labour. And that's the bottom line of, about, co about communism. And actually it's an idea that pre-exists Marx that goes back to Blanqui and the radical French communists that what the force that is going to a, a, achieve communism is precisely that mass of wage laborers who are expressed, who are oppressed and exploited by <coughs> capitalism, but precisely because they're exploited have the capacity to carry through this revolution that can take us out of capitalism to communism. It's so nice that we can immediately uh, enter into a dialogue because strangely that you, first let me make a bad taste remark when you said you were down there in South Africa and then you started bursting to cry, uh, 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 crying, I thought because England is up to Germany, okay, but that's it. I also did share our opposition to cheap patriotism when Slovenia lost to England, my son was almost beaten by his peers because he was for England. So <laughs> we are all here, but let me go to the more serious work. Uh, 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 yes, I share deeply your wonderful idea is looking at ourselves from the future Museum of Capitalism, but the first bad news we have today, I was in a couple of them, is that, you know, unfortunately, museums of communism already exist. In practically all post-socialist Eastern European countries, I visited one in Budapest, for example, when I bought a wonderful thing, a candle as a figure of Stalin, and then you light a candle as a Okay, let's go on. Where I also, what I also share with you is uh, at least the first part of your critique of Badiou, that is to say his total conscious, you cannot accuse him that he didn't see it, he is absolutely consciously opposed to it, of the very notion that critique of political economy has a place, a direct place, in what he calls idea of communism. My point here would have been simply that one should, what one should do with regard to but you is, because but you is here, although he denies it, obviously Kantian. He even calls in his communist hypothesis the idea of communism a kind of Kantian regulative idea. And he absolutely opposes any too narrow mediation between this idea and uh, actual social life. For him, this is really historicism. You fall into the historicist trap. What I think is that we should pass here from Kant to Hegel. Hegel for Hegel, idea is something which is not just an ideal opposed to reality, but something which has in itself the power of its own actualization. Which may sound ultra-idealist, but it's exactly what Marx says in what you refer to him. That, that is to say, to conceive the idea of communism as a real movement. Maybe our small differences begin with where to locate this real movements. Uh, let me begin with some quite empirical remarks. You know, I was in China when this happened, three, four weeks ago when these strikes started, and maybe 
This is a manipulation, what I was told then. But I wasn't told by official representatives. I was told by this, maybe you know them, one query and other critical intellectuals. They told me that these strikes were strictly tolerated even up to a point, how do you call it, incited by the Communist Party, as part, they think that the only way to cut a long story short for China to retain its economic momentum in a situation of worldwide crisis is to insist the purchase power of the local working class. So for them, they're maybe a little bit too cynical. They say, of course, this discontent with strikes was all the time there. The mystery for them is why all of a sudden were strikes not only tolerated, but even positive, that was for them the big sign, positively reported in the media. You know, till now, if you mentioned the word independent trade unions, before you finished the sentence, to put it in backstage ironic way, you already had a one-way ticket train to Mongolia, to some camp. All of a sudden, now, my God, strikes get positive mention in the official media. But my modest counterexample to you would have been precisely China. What my friends there are trying to convince me is that exploited as they are, and I totally agree with you, this Fox story is ridiculous. The nicest part of the story is this one. It was reported, I hope you know it probably better than me in the media. You know how Foxconn reacted? It's ridiculous. It's the best of the brutal cynicism of what we call patriarchal caring charity, human relations, capitalism. You know how Foxconn reacted to this wave of suicides? Three things. First, all people who work for Foxconn had to sign anti-suicidal pact. <laughs> so then so, promising that they will not kill themselves. Second, this is not a joke, that's so crazy about it. Second point, now this we got more into Orwellian ominous waters. They had also to sign a legal obligation that if they see their fellow worker like depressed in a suicidal mood, that they will denounce him to the factory authority. Oh. So that they can call a psychiatrist. And the last measure, it's not a joke. Because as you said, these are gigantic factories, they don't have enough space. Most of the work happens in high-rise buildings, which is why the suicides are mostly done by jumping through windows. This is not a joke. They are putting large nets, network. <laughs> I am the first one to agree with you. But what nonetheless they told me is that, and this is the tragedy of the situation, that in spite of all of this, those who can move to these big industrial cities like Shanghai and others, consider themselves up to a point, even the lucky ones. The true problem is background. And there, then we have a totally different situation of these half-unemployed farmers, and maybe this is at least as important a movement. This is why I think maybe we should show a little bit more mercy towards China. Maybe I was told that these poor farmers who are left behind by this capitalist explosion are starting to organize themselves, and organize themselves in Chinese numbers. A kind of a self-created network, we are talking about tens, according to some, uh, uh, sources even 100 to 100 of millions of people. Autonomous farmer self-organization and the Communist Party, not for any good democratic reason, but because they think that if they oppress this, there is an even stronger exp explosion at a certain point, is 
seriously considering the possibility of allowing them, of recognizing them at least as some kind of a partner. Maybe this is just an old fascist formula, corporate organization, maybe it's something more. But when I maybe don't quite agree, now I come to basically, first, I think uh, you were a little bit unfair, although I criticized him all the time, I'm ready to take the blame for the commons, the work Tony Negri, because he would concede all this, no exploitation, new subjectivity exploited by capital. What I am claiming is something, and I will try to put it as brutally and openly as possible, so that I expose myself to the counterattack. What I am claiming is that to grasp, I repeat what I, the claim I made here the last year, that to grasp today, today's capitalist dynamics, this logic of exploitation is no longer enough. That again, to grasp the capitalist dynamic, you need to take into account first the new role, important role, as a source of wealth of raw materials, which for Marx were basically out of the equation. You know, the irony is that when Marx checked it up in Capital, wants to demonstrate that raw materials cannot be a source of wealth in the sense of value, of course, he, you know what he gives as an example? Oil. So, to provoke you, I already was interrupted a year ago, I like to repeat the provocation, I think something very simple. If you apply dogmatically Marx to today's Venezuela, you cannot but say that Chavez is exploiting the United States. He is not. But that's why we have to rethink it. One thing are raw materials, which are an important part of the struggle to build from them. Another one is so-called intellectual property. And that, for me, the problem of commons is crucial. Again, my vulgar example, which I used a year ago. How did that creep, who is now happily on the way down, uh, Bill Gates, how did he become, at least at some point, the, the wealthiest man in the world? I don't believe in the classical Marxist explanation of, you know, extreme extra extra super profit exploitation. I think we should return to the category of rent, which is still some kind of exploitation, but different. I think uh, Bill Gates is not so rich because he especially has exploits his workers or whatever, but because, again, he appropriated part of what should be and in a way even is our commons. Each of us, when we want to be in touch in a shared public space, you have to pay to him the price, just so that we can share the same field through internet, social space, and so on and so on. This is for me the logic of the privatization of the commons. It has something to do... Uh, okay. <laughs> I will overcome this quick heart attack and go on. Yes. It has something, I think, to do with the big problem of what Marx called general intellect. Where I think Marx is at his best, you remember in Grundrisse, where Marx says how, uh, uh, how uh, the moment the knowledge, collective practical knowledge, will become the main source of wealth, capitalism will dissolve. He comes very close to some kind of almost economic determinism. I think what Marx didn't take into account is the possibility of this general knowledge, collective practical knowledge, productive knowledge, being reprivatized again. This is why I think that although I agree with you, commons were enclosed all the time. I nonetheless agree with those who claim that today 
we have a new, much more radical, maybe even uh, unthinkable for Marx, twist in this story. So this was the introduction, now the shorter part, the main part. What I... Okay, I will just enumerate points for you, since I am, again, as I always emphasize, the victim of a brutal, metaphysical, linear notion of time. <laughs> Sorry, you know, museum of communism, I'm still absolutely for communism, but what this means is that we, the left, really have to take into account the amount of the failure of 1990. What I claim is that not only did a certain Stalinist state socialism disintegrate, now with a 20 years delay, we are getting that also welfare state social democracy lost, is slowly disappearing. And I would add to provoke you something which probably you will not agree, but it's my crucial point, that, you know, all those who were criticizing these twin brothers of two versions of state socialism, Western democratic welfare state and uh, Stalinist, uh, usually do it from a position of a dream of councils, Soviets, immediate democracy, and so on and so on. I claim that that one also has to be abandoned. That this was the big dream which died different deaths. Chinese Cultural Revolution, 68, and so on and so on. I claim this is an illusion. The idea that somehow the authentic working class will awaken in some kind of direct democracy and so on. Second point, when we are anti-capitalists here, now I hope here at least we will all agree. Did you notice how today we even have, as my Indian friend Rasharoi Giri recently told me, wonderful expression, an overload of the critique of the horrors of capitalism. Nothing is easier than to be anti-capitalist today. In all the media you are bombarded. That corrupted banker, that, that, uh, that company which is polluting the environment, that company which is using child slave labor, and so on and so on. It's elementary to say what is wrong here. You can be as much anti-capitalism as you want, but this ethical anti-capitalism always personifies it with, you know, that corrupted, that corrupted. They obfuscate that the question is the question of the system. Even Obama, to whom I still have at least a certain minimal respect, deeply disappointed me here. How did Obama react to BP oil spill? I'm not paid by British Petroleum. I also think they are disgusting. All I'm saying is that it's, you see, we have a great natural catastrophe with unpredictable consequences. Instead of approaching it in a radical way, mobilizing all the people, maybe even the army, at least the, the US army in this way would have been doing something more meaningful than killing, than killing the Afghanis, no? Uh, what is he doing? He changed it into a typical legal, private, immoral culprits uh, problem. As it, I will kick the BP in the ass and I will make them pay, which is totally ridiculous. You can see here how we cannot do with ecology the amount of crises which are definitely ahead of us. They absolutely need something that I cannot by call, but call a communist approach. That is to say, a large mobilization outside the market and outside this legal state form. So, uh, uh, again, uh, the problem for me is the following one of communism. I hope we also here we all agree. This basic insight of Marx that the problem of freedom, the true side of the problem of freedom, is not the political system. You know, all this me measurement done by Western agencies who, in a patronizing way, measure third world countries. Do you have free elections? Do you 
you have independent judges and so on. The true measure of freedom is what goes on in what superficially appears as an uh, apolitical set of civil society relations, production, exploitation, even family, and so on and so on. There, in this, not directly, of course they are in reality political, political, their freedom is decided. Which is why I think that this cheap anti-capitalism, oh how corrupted they are, BP, this company, that, still implicitly, yes, remains within the scope of this legal approach. We need to expand political democracy to cover it up and so on and so on. It cannot be done. Okay, I will now really sum it up because I would like maybe to engage in a debate with you, John, with your legendary statement, which I hope maybe I misunderstood about, you know, like, letting <laughs> our job properly at this local level and somehow, now I'm not sure I got you correctly. The way you are radically interpreted is, you know, it's like this, what Hegel would have called uh, subterranean uh, work of uh, uh, slow work, so that you don't have to confront the power directly, you just do this local work. We don't need to take power, but some, well, well to be very brutal and really to sum it up. My problem is one that I read your work. No, no, the KGB did it. I have it in black on the clothes. All the examples that you, this is an empirical claim. Please, I would like to be refuted. This is not a rhetorical stupidity. All, all examples that you enumerate, I claim, still presuppose not only a relatively strong, but even a relatively efficient state, I claim. Yes, I claim so many. That, uh, you know, you can have all these local communities doing their work, is always in the background where uh, the state remains. Second point, what to do then when, to put it in very naive terms, how literally am I to take, yes, stop, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm stopping, it's a dialectical process. <laughs> how, how literally do you take this not power? Like, now I'm consciously uh, to provoke you as an aggressive among comrades, we are contradicting. <laughs> How, what would you say to Morales? No, no, step down, rather do your work down. And my idea is not Chavez. I have, my idea is Morales here. We can get power, why not? We can, in collaboration with all those local movements that you like so much, we can do the work. And it, okay, I could go on for one hour, but just to conclude, another point which we said. People, when we dream about society to come, people usually tell us, oh, this is utopia, this is impossible. Just to conclude, Rima, uh, yeah, I see your evil eye, yeah. <laughs> Through my ideological eyes, I see the red letter and you are weeping. Okay, sorry. Uh, oh, sorry, you know that, you know that uh, it's typical when people tell us impossible. Did you notice how, in what a strange way, the signifier impossible functions in our ideological space. On the one hand, the official ideology is telling us everything is becoming almost possible. You know, in the field of private pleasure, science, and so on. We will be able to change our character. We will be able not to mention what horrible things in sexuality doing. We will be able to travel to the moon. Everything is possible there. But the moment you approach social relations, 
There are more and more things which are impossible, you know, as if the message of the ruined ideology will be able to travel to the moon, to Venus, will be able to become immortals, of course, why not? But will it be possible to change a little bit the healthcare care legislation? No, no way. That's <laughs> so, you know, the possible, what is impossible is maybe the crucial ideological opposition today, and our message should be, of course not in an irrational sense, but in the sense of what appears as impossible within a certain ideological social space, it's, yes, you are right, it is impossible, but look, see, look at us and learn, we will do the impossible. just around the corner from where the police shot Alexis Grigoropoulos, the 15-year-old, in December 2008. And with all the huge riots that followed that shooting, one of the things that happened was that people occupied a, a car park in, just around the corner from where it happened, in, near the centre of Athens. And they tore down the walls of the car park and they transformed it into a garden. 
and it's a beautiful garden and it's used by all the people in the neighborhood and it's used by children and they hold meetings there it's fantastic and the first time i went i felt wow this is communism this is revolution And I still feel that strongly. I still feel very much that that is where communism is. That is what communism means. Why? I think firstly, because the garden grew out of a no. Grew out of a yeah, basta, yeah, we can't go on. We can't go on living in this capitalist world. We can't go on creating and recreating capitalism because it is destroying us and it is destroying us very quickly. We have to break the logic. We have to break the logic of capitalism and we have to do it now, not in some far off day in the future. And that was the starting point of the garden. It was just a refusal that enough no we can't go on but that refusal that rage became transformed into a process of creation in other words it's not just a negation it's a negation and creation not just an against it's an against and beyond the transformation of rage into a, into a change here and now in the city of Athens and this change seems to be crucial in two respects. Firstly, by being a garden, it announces that what we need is not just a change in our own social relations, but also a change in our relation with other forms of life, with non-human forms of life. In other words, a garden has the special feature of saying, of saying that any anti-capitalism, any communism must be based on the different relation with the plants and animals that surround us. And secondly, it's crucial in this garden that the, 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 the whole process is create, creates a different set of social relations. It's a process of creating a no-go area, if you like, creating a crack in the logic of capitalist social cohesion. That people involved in the park put up, they don't in fact, but symbolically you can imagine them putting up signs around the garden saying capital keep out, here we are going to create something different, here we are creating something according to a different logic, here we are not going to measure land according to the price per square meter, here we are going to appreciate land by the pleasure it gives to us and our children. So these non-capitalist, it seems to me that they are non-capitalist social relations, non-capitalist in the sense that they break with the logic of capital, that they consciously create relations that are asymmetrical in relation to capitalism, relations of horizontality, relations of cooperation, relations of friendship, of love, if you like, relations that do not fit in to the logic of capital. So you've got 
the creation then in this area of a communal structure, something that develops and take, takes up and develops the whole communal tradition of anti-capitalism, the whole way in which the movement has always tried to develop, to, 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 to organize itself, to um, find forms of taking decisions that are horizontal, that involve everybody in the struggle of capitalism. So you could think of the garden as a space of communism, that communism then exists. It is not in the far-off future because we don't know if there's going to be a far-off future. Communism exists and it exists in the interstices of capitalism. That's where it exists. And it exists in the interstices of capital as an interstitial growth in, against, and beyond capital. And it is always difficult and it is always contradictory and of course there are problems and of course there are conflicts and of course the people who run the garden have the problem of how do they keep out the police, how do they deal with drug addicts, how do they deal with drug pushers, how do they actually create and maintain it as a real communal space. But it seems to me that there is no other way we can think about revolution, that the only possible way we can think about revolution is as the creation, expansion, multiplication and confluence of such communist spaces, of such cracks in the texture of capitalist domination. And it seems ridiculous, it seems ridiculous, and you begin to think that in fact this Navarino Park isn't just a kind of tiny local example. Slavoj would probably like me to say, or might, but it is actually something that exists all over the place, that all over the place we people create spaces, they create no-go areas, they create areas in which they say, no, here capital will not come in. Here we are going to develop our lives according to a different logic. And if you go to the southeast of Mexico, if you go to Chiapas, to the Zapatista area, all around the Zapatista area there are signs saying, bad government, stay out. Here the people rule. But it's something that you can imagine in Navarino Park, as I said, it's something that exists around occupied factories. It's something that exists, say, in the free software movement. It's something that we all do. It's something that we all do in our relations with our children, in our relations with our loved ones. We say, capital, keep out. Here we are doing something else. Here we are de developing different social relations. And when you begin to think of it like that, you begin to see that the world is not simply a world of domination, that the world is actually a world of cracks, a world of interstitial communism. So perhaps communism isn't the word. It isn't, in fact, communism. What you have is perhaps not communism, but communizing, a process of communizing in which people are trying to communize the society in many different ways. The only communism that we could really talk about, I suppose, in any full sense, 
would be a world system in which we all participated in determining our own lives. But for the moment, at least in, for the moment, all we have is these movings, these movements from the particular, these movements of communizing, of communization, if you like. And to talk of experiences like that, to talk about in terms of communizing, I hope makes it clear that I'm not thinking of micro-politics, it is not just a local, it is not just a garden. But if you think, it seems to me that it doesn't help to think of those spaces as autonomous spaces, because autonomous spaces imply something self-contained, that they are cracks, and cracks move, cracks run, cracks shoot out in all directions. Cracks come together, and they come together in ways that we can often not, um, not anticipate and not organize. So to think of radical social change, thoroughgoing change, we need to think of a confluence of cracks. But the question is, the problem is that we don't have any model for talking about this confluence. We can say, obviously, that the confluence of the cracks, the coming together of the cracks, requires some sort of organization. But this sort of organization is not institutionalization, because institutionalization doesn't work. And institutionalization doesn't work because um, the cracks by their nature are the th are thresholds, are opening to, different, to a different sort of society, to different sorts of social relations. And the institutionalization is always the imposition of the present upon the future. And that is why, in fact, institutions never work, it seems to me, as a way of promoting the confluence of cracks. How do we organize a revolution? As Raoul Sibeki says, we can't organize a revolution. In fact, we can't organize a rebellion. Rebellion is a movement that nobody controls. What we can do is try and strengthen it. What we can do is try and promote these cracks, try and create and expand these cracks, but we can't actually, we can't institutionalize them, we can't organize them. And that is the answer to Savoy's question about Evo Morales. In Bolivia between 2000 and 2005, we had a huge explosion of cracks, a huge explosion of communizing. And what the election of Morales did was to for channeling that communizing process into its logical opposite, in other words, into state forms of organization, and in many ways to, 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 to bring that, that process to a closure. Not completely, of course, because it's very contradictory. But that is what institutionalization does. It kills cracks. Communism, communizing and statification are processes that move opposite directions. So then what? How do we promote the, how do we think about the confluence of cracks? How do we think about strengthening the communizing process? I think that the only way, perhaps or the best way, is to think in terms of resonances, in terms of radiations, in terms of light shining in the dark. For me, Navarino Park is a light the chimes in the dark, and the dark is a very, very, very dark, dark. But it's a light that shines, and the, the light that, that lights up the dark. And look around, look around, and begin to see those other lights.
And that is what we have to do. That is what we have to do. We have to strengthen those likes and create those likes. And that, for me, is communism.
and I mean uh, this is only way. What I just ask is what I will ask from British people to help us organize a referendum, what is not uh, legally obliged by our government to be done. This is from Toros. Is there a possibility for Marxists and anarchists to work together in the aim of reaching a communist world since their conceptualization of communism is generally the same? And secondly, from Mark uh, from LSE, is democracy the biggest obstacle to stopping irreversible climate change before it becomes irreversible uh, in, a, in 15 years, he says. Okay, the speaker after Rachel will be Paul Holborough from Brixton. Hi, I want to take issue with um, John Holloway, really, because I think listening to him, it seems to me that he underestimates what capitalism does to the human condition. Capitalism makes us alienated. Marx describes the process where what is human becomes animal, and we can only feel ourselves when we are doing the animal. And it's through our labour, which is what actually creates us something special, that take, that gets taken away from us and completely perverts our lives. It means that we can't imagine all our capabilities because of the world that we live in. And that relationship doesn't just stop at work. So we don't get rid of alienation when we leave work. It carries, carries all through our lives, which is partly why so many people feel that they can't think, that they feel that they can't dream. And it's through resistance that you do see, but partly you have to dream if you're um, a Marxist and want to imagine a better world. Part of keeping you going is thinking about different possibilities. But it's important to think, also realise that your dreams are, are based in the world that we're living. So if you just think about, I'm a healthcare worker, and as far as I can get when thinking about health work, it's better hospitals, because that's what I know, that's what healthcare is. Nicer drugs, more research on drugs and better hospitals. But actually, in a, in a whole change, a revolutionary change, everything gets up and played for grabs, and in that, all our ideas change. And what's exciting about within resistance is that dreams and dreamers are created, and those dreams are some contingency, you know, when you think about from the early chartists and their sort of dreams about wanting land and wanting more, but one of the, the main things that, come, that people want is to be in the driving street of their, driving seat of their own lives. And I think that's what John Holloway doesn't see. If all we can have is a park, or a series of parks, then we're not fundamentally changing. It's, it's, it's a funny thing, because it's like we need to realise, we need to dream, but we also need to realise that our alienation perverts our dreams. It's only in acting and changing the world that we can unpervert our dreams and really release our own imagination and dream the dreams we need to dream. <laughs> From Rifat, does it not signify that the horizon of capitalism has not been transcended if, if communism is still defined within the framework of the terms of economic production? And secondly, from Oliver from Germany, don't we need socialism first and only then communism? Um, after Paul will be Thomas Franke from Czech Republic. Comrades, these debates are fantastically important because they are a real uh, riposte to those who argue that Marxism is a dead dogma. It is not. It is a tool to try to explain the world. But I must say that both to Slavoj and to John, that my perception of the world, 
differs radically from theirs. John mentions Navarino Park. Slaboy mentions the anti-capitalist overload. Now, I think it's very difficult to explain to Greek workers that there is an anti-capitalist overload in Greece when they're being asked to take a 20% cut in their wages. I think it is also, I think it is also, quite frankly, unbelievable to point to Navarino Park as a way of resisting the vicious attacks of the Greek government and indeed followed by other European governments across the continent. And it seems to me, therefore, that where we in the Socialist Workers' Party differ from those other people on the platform is that we believe that our tradition looks at the democracy of workers in struggle. So that, of course, there is a perception in China that Foxconn is going to herald a more tolerant Chinese working class. But, comrades, I do not believe that for one moment. The Chinese ruling class is a vicious ruling class that will use any means possible in order to hold down the Chinese workers. And what Foxconn have done is to frighten the Chinese ruling class into trying to, to hide their weakness. And therefore, I believe that revolutionary Marxists say that the question of workers' struggle, and I don't agree with Slavoj, the question of workers' councils, of councils of trade unionists and neighbourhoods, they are not an imposition from revolutionary Marxists. They are an imposition from the experience of workers in struggle. What I believe we've heard tonight from those two is very interesting, very entertaining, but in no way points a way forward to change this rotten world. I feel I have a couple more questions to read out, and I'll just point out I've had this many questions, so we might get through them all. Um, the first question is from Richard from the CWU, yep. um, to Slavoj. We now have the new international philanthropists like Bill Gates throwing money at good causes. I wonder if you could say a few words about these good people, or neo-communists, or neo-paternalists, or whatever name you care to give them. Um, and the other question is, please justify Slavoj's view about direct democracy, that it is an illusion, especially if you take into consideration uh, the huge capabilities of computer networking. Oh. Computer networking. And after Thomas will be Judith Orr. Um. Uh, comrade Vijay, I want to thank you for three things. I want to thank you for as you, uh, that you, as an Eastern European, as an anti-Stalinist and a former uh, dissident, have, uh, have put Lenin back on the map to get Lenin into I want to thank you for coming to our demonstration in Prague against the uh, missile defense shield that the U.S. wanted to, to establish in the Czech Republic. And uh, as a third, I want to. Uh, Thank you for being frank in, uh, in your last interview for, for The Guardian, where you, where you admit to bluffs and, and uh, because some people have taken all of your writing at face value and it has done some damage, I think. <laughs> and I, I'm also a bit uh, 
we have a force that is created within the belly of the beast that can actually challenge the system. I don't think we can all we can just create lots of little bits of socialism until they don't notice that we've taken over the world. I think we have to create a force that can actually smash it. societies with history of class struggles. Struggle will happen whatever we decide in the room tonight. There will be struggles, whether here or China or everywhere around the world. Struggle will happen. It's a, it's a product of capitalism, of a minority exploiting majority. What isn't predestined is, of course, whether our side will win. And that's the difference, isn't it? What sort of political leadership will the movements have, will the workers have, will people who come behind? And that's actually what Marxism is all about. I think we do need political leadership of the, the real force that can change the world, and that is socialist politics, and the idea that actually we can smash this and replace it with, as the old anti-capitalist slogan said, something nicer, something a lot nicer, something a lot different, where there really is true liberation for the whole of humanity. Um, just to let you know, um, they'll, they'll be signing copies of their books if you're to buy them on the stall outside, just, just outside these stalls in the foyer. We do have to leave the room because there's a play in here straight after this meeting. So, first of all, I'll bring back Alex. Well, it's frustrating because there's so many different points that have come up, come up. And I'm just going to deal with three, three questions. First of all, Dushko, I'm absolutely with you demonstrating against NATO. I'm absolutely not with you when it comes to defending the old Stalinist regime before 1989. The worst, for people who are real communists, communists like us, to quote a, a book uh, by Negri and Deleuze, the biggest problem that communists like us have is the, the heritage of the Stalinist, Stalinist regimes. And we have to insist there's an absolute difference. What we're fighting for and the old regimes. That's one point. Secondly, Slavoj, you really, all this stuff about intellectual property and immaterial labour, honestly, it's a total dead end. Go, don't, don't go near it. Honestly, I mean, stop. Bill Gates, at the minute, um, Apple has overtaken Microsoft uh, in terms of, uh, of stock market value. What does Apple? Uh, sell. It doesn't sell software. It doesn't, it's crucially isn't to do with intellectual property. It sells things. It sells very nice things. Computers and iPhones and, and thi things like that. It produces material goods that are made by those workers in, in, in Foxconn. All, all this stuff about immaterial labour. What Marx shows is that under capitalism all labour is immaterial. Because um, John is very good about this in his, his new book, Crack Capitalism, because all the work that we do is subject to the imperative logic of competition that means that our work, our productivity is constantly being compared with the productivity of, and work of workers in other, other workplaces. We're subject, in other words, our actual, our concrete labour is transformed into the abstract labour, which is the source of the profits that drive the system. That's the critical thing about Marx's theory of value. And all this stuff about services and, uh, you know, uh, immaterial goods and immaterial labour is a total waste of, waste of time. I mean, you, you should just get away from that, Slavoj, because it's been a big mistake. 
final point, final point to do with what 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 John said. The pro, I mean, the the picture that you paint, John, is incredibly inspiring. But the problem is that logic, that remorse, remorseless logic of cap capitalist competition, the logic of ab abstract labour, constantly seeks to crush and to close those those cracks. And the only way we can keep those cracks open and widen them is to establish a different social logic. And to do that, we need power. And the thing that I really, I think I disagree with both of you about this. I don't think that power is reduced to what we could do when we could make a garden or form some better way of living, which people do do all the time. And I don't think power, alternatively, is just a matter of the existing state. I think there's a third form of power that comes when people organise collectively to resist their exploitation. And out of that power, we can get a different way of running the world. And that's what will produce communism. anti-capitalism, it is over a lot of questions and one cannot uh, answer them all. So at least I would like to limit myself at least to answer yours, the two of you, main point. First, as it was already noted, that metaphor of the garden keep capital out. I would also say there is nothing new. Every capitalist system needs as its inherent component something like this. In traditional capitalism, yet capital stay out of the family. Capital stay out of the church and so on. A kind of a space outside, I think. Uh, so for me, okay, let me know that. The problem is, okay, garden, everything nice, okay. Let's see if there are drug dealers in that garden, there are women beaten and so on. What would you have done? Sorry to tell you, I would have called the police. If not, I would have organized very brutal thugs to keep violent people out. I'm sorry to tell you. Or let me go a step further. Uh, we have not only a gardener, but a group of farmers putting together uh, an efficient cooperative. Then, of course, the capitalist farmers don't just look and send us a telegram with best wishes. They organize a sabotage here and there to prove how a thing like this cannot function. What would you have done? I would have organized a counter-terror. I'm sorry to tell you. Seven of them were there. Maybe if they killed one of us, killed three of us, and so on. I'm sorry to tell you this. Like Chavez now. I have great problems with Chavez. But, as it is clear now, I was convinced by statement by Lawrence Eagleburger and so on, that this lack of food temporary in Venezuela, again, I'm not totally defending Chavez. I'm referring to a very specific phenomenon of, it can be proven beyond reasonable doubt, that the lack of food in this state transgressed in Venezuela is not just the spontaneity of the market where out of self-interest uh, uh, merchants uh, uh, or distributors operate like this, it's part of an orchestrated uh, nature of the United States connected with local saboteurs. What do you do here? I'm sorry to tell you, a limited amount of state terror is totally justified to me. You put police on them, you use secret police, you smash them and so on. Otherwise, sorry, they step down from power. 
Because, you know, you use this wonderful poetic expression that you had all these gardens, gardens went wider, wider, and then Morales, you used the nice term, brought this to a logical conclusion. What is the logical conclusion? All Bolivia didn't become a garden. But the logical conclusion was that the left took power, controls police, controls up to a point. I know of the tension, the army and so on. Which why? Which is why? To refer to your example, the gardens, if I don't take the term garden in this isolated sense of where you go, but the gardens, let's call them cracks, liberate the territories, are, I hope, much safer because of this. Because you can count on the police that it that instead of annoying you, it will maybe even protect you. So I absolutely agree with both of you that power, no, that, because nonetheless we all share, I hope, something, that power is not just state power. What really matters is local self-organization or rather productive self-organization and so on and so on. I just have my doubts, and this is the problem of councils and so on, to what extent can this local self-organization model be, be universalized. I think that we simply have to confront the problem of, the problem of power. This is one thing. The second thing, very, uh, very quickly, as to this uh, uh, Marxist, because they call it counter-attack, Greek made cynical my idea of overload. No, I was talking about propaganda in the wealthiest Western countries where, my God, listen, look at Hollywood. It's almost difficult to find a movie having anything to do with business which doesn't in a ridiculous way portray a bad egotist capitalist. And there are no limits here. Remember that stupid second John Grisham movie, Pelican Brief, where even the evil capitalist is connected with the President of the United States. My problem is not, oh, you see, we are only in anti-capitalism. No. My problem is why even such ideological topics, which appear very radical, really threaten no one, only make the system more efficient. That was my point of anti-capitalist overload. <laughs> question with which I will not be afraid to conclude. Uh, this point first about uh, working class exploitation, all that complex and so on and so on. Sorry, but uh, I definitely think that today it's much... First, let me say something. I, it's so easy, you know, to play the old card. No, the working class will arise against exploiters. But I take very seriously communism, and this is why I, for me, really, as you both emphasize, it should be a real movement, not as my good friend, but you is saying, an idea of communism, which then, as he concedes, from time to time, it explodes, like under Spartacus, Rosa Luxemburg, and so on. That's not enough. What interests me, to put it in very naive terms, is where today do we see, if not already, elements of communism, at least to be very brutal, but in the authentic Marxist sense, where do we see contradictions, antagonisms? This is for me the only real question, my God, for which it is clear that even in the long term, 
it will not be possible for no matter how reformed, democratic, multicultural, tolerant, liberal, democratic capitalism will not be able to not even not resolve but even keep in check these antagonisms. And in a very modest way, I try precisely because I'm also like you, guided by the problem. Let's not dream about abstract communism. Where do see do we see traces today? I claim ecology. I claim intellectual property, I claim, uh, I claim biogenetics, maybe the list is, I claim, of course, and this is for me crucial. Here, for example, I claim we should make a step further from Marx. Let's be very clear, for Marx, the ideal radical pure form of capitalism was one in which legal equality, we are all citizens, I know you start to you want to stop the voice of truth and so on. <laughs> because there was just, okay. But the whole point of Marx is that legal equality, we are all free citizens, is the very form of how in the civil society as legal free subject we, uh, we assume being exploited and so on and so on. What I claim, it's a very commonsensical claim empirically in the best British empiricism sense, is that obviously today's capitalism, this is for me the big meaning of things like, which I agree with you in a mystified way, are described by Agamben as Homo Sacer and all that, is that capitalism in order to function no longer can even afford this universal equality. It is receding from it, you have immigrants, you have Le Sompatier, you know what I mean? It has to create new and new de facto excluded second class citizens and so on and so on. That's uh, again another, my God, I'm very practical here. Isn't this another side when we can, where we can start the struggle? As to Apple, you know, I don't agree respectfully with your example. Yes, I know. Uh, Apple is selling, uh, selling products, Microsoft also, you buy a disk and so on. But I claim, and it was proven that, again, the price of iPad is for me intellectual labor in what precise sense? In the sense that it, in the price of iPad, $400 and so on, the part of material production of it is practically negligible. It's not that, you know, Steve Jobs puts together the production cost and they say, let's screw it with extra exploitation when we arrive at the price. It's, it's, a totally different, it's a totally different logic. But again, what makes me a little bit depressed, and I will get boost from this, not a plot, I want to be finished as the Jesus Christ. <laughs> is that, uh, it depresses me a little bit, you know, this rhetoric of no revisionist, intellectual labor, blah, blah, nothing working class and so on. I don't see, I think, no, this is bad news, but no matter how long you will wait, you will not get a moment when this authentic working class, the way we knew it, will reappear and so on and so on. I think that working class the definition of working, if there is an absolute human tragedy today, and typically those who speak all the time about human rights never mention it, is today's Congo. You cannot say this is working class. You know, all these excluded, exploited in different ways. The problem is to bring all of them together as <laughs>
problem. Our problem is surely that we all live in this, we live in a society dominated by a suicidal dynamic. The dynamic which Marx analyzed in the law of value, the dynamic which structures production according to faster, 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 produce things, produce things that will sell, produce them as fast as possible, as quickly as possible. We know that we reproduce and reproduce this dynamic every time we produce value. We know that we do produce this dynamic every time we perform abstract or alienated labor. The question is how can we break that dynamic because if we don't break it then it is very likely that we will destroy humanity in a reasonably short time, destroy humanity completely. Yeah. Okay. How can we break that dynamic? It seems to me that we cannot break that dynamic by calling Tories scum. It doesn't tell us. We know that they're scum. We know that the Labour <laughs> politicians are scum. Why waste our time saying it? We cannot do it either calling for socialist policies because anything that a state does, states are forms of organization so integrated into the reproduction of capital that they cannot break that dynamic. And if you look at what's happening in Bolivia, Bolivia is not trying to break that dynamic. What is happening in Bolivia, what is happening in Venezuela is very exciting indeed. But the, re but the dynamic of capitalist production is being reproduced in both places. We cannot break that dynamic by thinking we are going to create communism in 50 years' time. Because we may not be around in 50 years' time. It is ridiculous. It is absurd. I'm sorry, Alex, your example of the museum was lovely. But it's really absurd to think of communism as a post-capitalist society someday. We cannot wait. the dynamic, the only way we can break the dynamic is by refusing and by doing things in a different way, by create, producing in a different way, by creating other social relations. And if we think of that, then we can see that there are millions and millions of examples in the world of people dedicating their lives to doing just that. And sometimes these examples are pathetic. And sometimes these examples are so small that we can think we can just laugh at them. And sometimes we think of them as a tiny garden. But if you look at what's happened in Cuba, for example, there's been an explosion of tiny gardens by the people themselves so that they now produce 60% of the food required for Havana within the city itself. And Alex says we need, if we want to build these cracks, if we want to expand these cracks, we need power. Yes, but we don't need their power, we need our power, we need our coming together.
we need to do things in a different way and if we create a community garden of course we have problems because drug addicts go in because drug pushers go in because of course people will beat women and do we call the police then like hell we do what do you do then don't call the police because the Greek police are like the Greek police are supposed to be. If the Greek police are like the Mexican police, then they will abuse those women systematically. They will not solve the problem. Okay, we do not. If we call in a power that is alien to us, then we are reproducing their power. What we need, of course, is forms of community control over behavior in the garden. Not our own police, but certainly our own forms of vigilance, our own forms of control of behavior. And that is, is exactly what the, 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 the gardens are, the garden is doing in Greece and many other community gardens. Okay, so we need power, but we need our own power, not a power that we can take, a real movement, communism. And that's what we have all said, the three of us, is communism is the real movement of anti-capitalist struggle. But that real movement of anti-capitalist struggle, where do we find it? Where do we find the antagonism? We don't have to look to intellectual property or, or to China or to Greece or to Mexico or to Venezuela. The antagonism of capitalism is part of our everyday lives and the struggle against capitalism is part of our everyday lives. And not only of people who come to Marxism in 2010, but it is part of the everyday life of all of us who live in capitalism. And that is why communism is a real possibility, it is a real possibility because it's a real actuality and that's where we have to start from. Thank you.